Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Reason for Our Hope, with a message titled, What Child Is This? Part 2. So let's look at our Bibles to Matthew, Luke, and some of the writings of Paul as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I remember the conversation I had with one of my grandsons. I was taking care of him as his mom and dad were in the hospital. And he was excited. He was going to get a brother. And in my grouchy fashion, I asked him what he was going to do with his brother. And he told me he was going to skateboard with him and play ball with him and generally have a good time. I told him he was going to be very disappointed. The kid wouldn't be able to talk. He wouldn't walk. He would sleep. He would eat. He would cry. And he'd fill his diapers with some very nasty smelling stuff. And that was it. My poor grandson, I washed his face. And then he said, that's all that he's going to do? And I said, yeah, that's about it. And then for good measure, just to make sure that I crushed his expectations thoroughly, I said, your brother is not going to get interesting for about three years, but he's going to wreck your access to mom and dad because they're going to be very busy with him. You might as well start getting along with your sister because, buddy, that's your best chance of success. <laughs> well, you're probably wondering, what kind of a grandpa is that? Cruel. But all silliness aside, listen, you know I'm right. Babies are nice, but unless you feed them and burp them and comfort them in endless crying, change their diapers apart from that, they don't do much. I know, I know, some of you women are saying, you know, sounds like a typical man talking. Well, perhaps, but I've long felt that babies smile at you. They're just struggling with an excess of gas. Now, why am I talking this way? If you've listened to the first message in this series, you'll remember that I set up an imaginary scenario, one that couldn't have happened. I wanted you to imagine that Matthew, Luke, John, and Paul came to the barn where Jesus was born. You see, these people are contemporaries with Jesus, and so they could not have been at the manger. In the case of most of them, they, they would not have been born at the time when Jesus was born, or they were born around the same time. But go with me on this, because the point I am making is key. Even though I said babies don't visit well, Indeed, when we visit babies, we're often just visiting with their parents. You see, we assume that, you know, if Matthew, Luke, John, and Paul came to visit Jesus, well, they just look around the barn and Luke would say, you know, I like what you've done with the place. But I have said, unlike all other babies that we would visit, this one would be different. This one would capture the full attention of these four men. They would spend hours just with the baby. In my imaginary scenario, I imagined John going first. As he held the baby, he looked into his face, and John began to speak about the child. This child, he says, is the ever-existent one. He is the creator of all things. He's the reason why we exist, and this one, of all children, is the explanation for his own bodily existence. This child, says John, is the only source of the world's moral light. If there is any good in this sin-broken world, that good has come from this child. This child is of one essence with the eternal Father, and this child is the matchless splendor of God, a splendor that would kill us if we dared to look at it, and yet this child is that splendor veiled in human flesh. John has now spent a great deal of time with the child, and by now, by this time, Matthew's hands are trembling. John has visited with the baby Jesus for so long, and, and he's flooded with joy, and he's beginning to sing. 
And Matthew wants to hold the baby as well. And as John hands the little baby into Matthew's arms, Matthew stares at him for a long time. You can see that he's transfixed. He's staring and he's wondering. And then you can hear him beginning to to murmur something. And as you listen carefully, you find yourself amazed. For what Matthew says seems so different from what John has been saying. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Well, it's clear that Matthew is speaking about a genealogy of men and women of the past, and soon you hear him talking about Obed and Ruth giving birth to Jesse, who was the father of David, the great king. And as you listen to him, you lean over and say, Matthew, what do you see? And Matthew says, this is the offspring of David, don't you see? This child is the offspring of David. And what I've said is that all you have to do is trace his ancestry and you will see that he is the heir of David's throne. And with that, Matthew begins to recount the story of Israel's second king, the greatest king in her history. And because Matthew knows we're listening, he says, when David's throne had been established and after David made Jerusalem his capital city and after he had built a palace for himself on one day, as David was sitting back in his chair and gazing out of his window, his jaw just dropped. He saw something that he should have seen before. Something was seriously out of place. Indeed, it was so out of place that he felt both amazed and ashamed when he realized it. He was living in luxury, and there, as he gazed out of his window, was the tabernacle of God, the the place of the worship of the great God, and that place of worship was a tent. What a contrast, David's house and God's tent. And so David called in a key prophet. His name was Nathan. And David announced what he was about to do. I will build a great house for God. And at first, Nathan thought it was a great idea, but when God spoke to Nathan, well, he came back to David with a word from God. So what did Nathan say? Well, his words are stunning. They're found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, first of all, Nathan tells David that God doesn't require this of David. But then comes the amazing part. God tells David that instead of David building God a house, the situation is going to be exactly reversed. God is going to build David a house. God tells David that he will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. David's reign will never end. Now, after Nathan told David this, David is stunned because as he thinks about it, he understands its full meaning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 18 and 19 says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now, that word instruction is also translated as charter. What David realized is that when God established his throne for all time, is that this was God's legal charter for the human race. David's throne is the legitimate form of government for the entire human race, for all of humankind. David's throne would reign over Jerusalem and over Israel. But this throne would govern the Romans and the Greeks and the Germans the French and the British and the Spanish. This throne would extend to the Middle East, into Arabia, 
and into Syria and Iran and Iraq, but it would extend beyond that to India and to China and the African lands into Korea, Vietnam, and Laos, to Australia and to New Zealand, and on to the Americas. There would not be one human being on the globe that would not be ruled by the successor of David's throne. The entire human race was wrapped up in this one throne. This was the destiny of the human race. And Matthew, holding the baby, says, this is the one who finally inherits that throne. This child, he says, as he holds him high, this child is the legitimate king of the world. This is humanity's rightful ruler. No other man can claim that title, but this one can. This is the hope that this world filled with despots and kings, with prime ministers and presidents, with dictators and democratic leaders, this one, this one trumps them all. He rules forever, perfectly, because that is his destiny. In effect, what Matthew is doing is he's echoing the words of Isaiah from Isaiah 9 verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And as Matthew holds his king in his arms, and as he bows before the baby who cannot now arise on his own, he tells us what else he sees. He says, I know that his mother Mary, when she was betrothed to Joseph before the two of them came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And I also know that you, Joseph, resolved to divorce her quietly so that she would not be put to open shame until the angel came to you and told you that that which was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit. And then as Matthew's eyes shift again on the child, he says, I know that it was the angel who made it plain what your name should be. You were to be called Jesus, for you will save your people from their sins. And while Matthew is talking, we can hear Paul mumbling in the background. Yeah, he mumbles, that name is the name which is above every name, that at the sound of that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this Jesus is Lord. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. The year is coming to a close and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we received from so many gracious ministry friends across the country. All of Back to the Bible Canada ministries, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, rely on the generosity of people like you. We teach the Bible with a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in our Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. And your gifts make all that we do possible. Please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $376,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. That the child has a name might not seem remarkable. All of us have a name. But this child's name is Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. This is God's life raft thrown to a sinking vessel. 
This is God's parachute from a falling fighter jet. This is God's medical miracle to a dying cancer patient. This is God's rescue to the children of Adam's ruined race who are standing in the waiting room docket awaiting the judge of all the earth to hurl them into an eternal dungeon. This is hope. This is light. This is a second chance. This is unexpected news of gladness. This is salvation from our sins and from what awaits us in the end. This is humanity's deliverer. The name Jesus means Yahweh's salvation. Well, now, Luke has patiently been awaiting his turn. He's watched John and Matthew celebrate Christmas. He's, he's watched them visit the baby, and a most amazing visit it is. What can he add to what has already been said? Has it all been said? Well, of course not. The half has not been told. Luke takes the child and begins to tell of the day of Mary's purification in the temple. He tells of a man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon, a, a righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. What is it that Luke sees? He sees what Simeon saw. This is the Lord's Christ. Do you know how tragic it is, asks Luke? In the future, there will be some who will think that Christ is just simply Jesus' last name, as if he's born to Joseph and Mary Christ. And so, says Luke, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many, and he is also a sign that will be opposed. And for that reason, many will curse by using his title, Christ. But he is the Lord's Christ, that is, he is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. This is God's Messiah, God's chosen one, or more literally, God's anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three anointed offices. That is, when someone occupied that office, oil was poured on them to show that they had not attained that office by human will, but rather by God's choosing. The first anointed office was that of prophet, who spoke to the people directly from God. They brought God to the people. The second anointed office was that of priest, who brought people to God by finding a way for them to be forgiven. And the third anointed office was king, who governed the people and showed them how to live. But one day, said the prophets, all these three would be combined in one man. He would not only speak God's word, he himself was God's word. He would not only sacrifice for them so that they could get to God, he himself would be their sacrifice. He would not just be their ruler, he would bring his perfect rule and set it into their very hearts. And says Luke, this is he. This is the Lord's Messiah. But there is more. This is the Lord's salvation that has been prepared for all peoples. This is a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and this is for the glory of your people Israel. This child is the hope of Israel, and this child is the hope of every Gentile. Indeed, all the people that Matthew spoke of, all the people who will be ruled by this child, all those people will have men and women among them who have longed earnestly for the day that this child would be born. Indeed, among the peoples of the world, this child is the long-anticipated revelation of God. I see in that, says Luke, a magnificent truth. He is Israel's Messiah, but he is also the world's Messiah. This is not the story just for Jews or for Christians.
This is the revelation for all peoples, all languages, all cultures, all races, all generations, all time periods. This is truth and revelation that has burst its bounds. It has gone to the whole world. And says Luke, therefore, this child is appointed to determine the destiny of everyone. And for this reason, this child is destined to determine the rise and fall of all. And then very tenderly, as Luke holds the child in his arms, he looks with love toward Mary and quietly tells her, this child will be the cause of a sword which will pierce through your own soul. He will cause you to weep. At this point in my imaginary narrative, I need to break in. You know, when I visited Romania many years ago, I visited very shortly after communism had fallen and the dictator Nicolae Ceausescu had just been killed. Christians in the city of Timisoara had not allowed the government to take away their pastor and a whirlwind of events was to have ensued, resulting in the death of the dictator. This child is appointed for rising and the falling, not only of many, but of all. The Christians in Romania told me that the reason Ceausescu fell was because he opposed Christ, and no one can oppose him who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I remember once reading of Queen Victoria of England, and she was to have said that she wanted to be the first of the earthly monarchs to stand before Jesus because she dreamed of throwing her crown at his feet and shouting, you alone are worthy. But whether a king or a peasant, the fact remains that this child determines your destiny, either for good or for evil. He had, in his own words, come to bring a sword to divide all mankind, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting ruin and disgrace. And Luke, therefore, holds the child in quivering arms, recognizing that he is the rock on which we either stand and are secure or against which we are smashed and are destroyed. And so as Psalm 2, verse 12 so aptly puts it, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, explains Luke, you can't take or leave this child. When you stand at the manger in Bethlehem, you must hesitate, for here is your destiny. Finally, Luke looks over to Paul. He has come last, and he awaits his turn. And he's been mulling over everything that's been said as John and then Matthew and then Luke have held a child and has seen in him all that is there. And Paul wants to summarize all that has been heard. And looking at the child, he begins to speak. He says, first nodding at John, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Indeed, says Paul, not only is this the great creator, but at this very moment, we exist because this child has willed that we should continue to exist. If he did not will it to be so, at each moment in time, our molecules would spin apart and we would be no more. Our thanks is owed to him not just once, but at every single moment in time. And then nodding at Matthew, Paul adds, yes, according to the flesh, he is descended from David. And yes, he is declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. 
And then nodding at Luke, he says, yes, this child is highly exalted so that God has indeed bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Paul adds one more matter. Though he was in the form of God, in this, in his birth, he has emptied himself or he has humbled himself. He, the very God himself, has taken the form of a servant. And he, very God, is found among us in the likeness of a man. And he has come to so humble himself that his humility would take him even to death, death on a cross. And Paul is not done. Looking to heaven, he begins to thank God for this child. I know, he says, that this moment is the revelation of a mystery, a mystery that has not been made known to men in other generations, a great mystery that Gentiles and Jews would be made fellow heirs in one body and together would become partakers of the promise of the good news that comes through this one child, Jesus Christ. And with that, Paul lays the child back into the manger and then leads Matthew and Luke and John and himself as all four men kneel at the altar, the altar which is the manger. And Paul leads the other three in an act of worship. And together they say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And the four men then rise from their knees. They have been to Mary and Joseph's home, and they didn't talk about Mary's labor or Joseph adding an additional room. They have been staggered at the sight of the baby in the manger. From all of us here at Back to the Bible, I pray that you have had a very, very Merry Christmas. John, I've enjoyed these messages so much. You know, John, Matthew, Luke, Paul, all these folks meeting with Jesus in the manger. I'm wondering, what would Dr. Newfeld, Dr. John Newfeld, have thought and felt at that moment? <laughs> well, I think I'd just been quiet and watched those other people. That's, that's true. But sometimes, you know, Ben, as you ask the question, I, I think how wonderful it would have been to have been at some of those, you know, things that we read about in Scripture, just to have witnessed the great action of God. Of course, I, I think that people could have passed by the baby Jesus and not seen, you know, what John, Matthew, Luke, and Paul saw. Uh, but as a matter of fact, they did see it, and uh, we are called to see it as well. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Advent season is a very special time of year, but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. Well, this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled An Advent Celebration. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His will in our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, 
Let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.